0: In this series, entrepreneurs, industry executives, academics, public figures, and other highly effective professionals share their formulas for success with you.
1: Welcome everybody to this episode of Elevate Your Leadership. My name is Bob Pizzini, and I love to interview people who not only help me in my organization, but can have an impact on you. Today, I have Dr. Helen Turnbull, who I will introduce in just a second but she is the second PhD in a row that I've interviewed and her academic credentials and her experience in the field of diversity and inclusion is extremely impressive. Diversity and inclusion is today's topic. As a business owner with 35 employees, I was wrestling with this issue prior to the unfortunate events in Minneapolis. And this has been an issue in the workplace for decades actually, but never has it been the issue that it is today. So again, we're talking diversity and Inclusion with Dr. Helen Turnbull. Regarding Dr. Helen, she is a keynote speaker and consultant in the area of global inclusion, unconscious bias, and diversity. We're going to define those things. She's worked all over the world. Uh, she has over 6 million air miles. That means you're platinum and you get to sit up front all the time. She has worked with many Fortune 500 clients, including J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, Microsoft, Intel, Raytheon, and Harvard Medical School. Five of her clients, Texas Instruments, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, and QBE Insurance won major awards because of her work with them. She has designed and developed three psychometric assessment tools on gender gap inclusion skills, and unconscious bias. She has two master's degrees, one in mental health counseling and one in organizational behavior. And her PhD is in organizational behavior. Now, when you hear her voice, you're going to understand the next part. She loves to watch golf and she loves to play golf. And she's been playing golf since she was 13 years old. And probably because she's originally from Scotland, there's a connection there. And the list goes on and on. But Dr. Helen Turnbull lives in Florida at this time. Dr. Helen, welcome.
2: Thank you, Bob. Thank you. It's a delight to be here today and to continue our conversation.
1: Yes, and that's exactly what we're doing. Dr. Helen helped me through some issues over the last month or so. It was a great discussion that we had. We met in you know, diversity and inclusion forums. Again, I'm trying to do the best thing I can for my company, my 35 employees, and I had my eye on this before the, the subject became as heated as it is these days. But it is a heated topic, and we're, we're gonna get right into that shortly. But first, Dr. Helen, how is it that you got into this line of work?
2: Yes, it's a really a good question in a sense, Bob, because here you have a white woman from Scotland, and you're like, so what made you interested in this topic? And in part, it was because when I left Scotland and came here in 1980, It was like starting again. And I realized that, no, I made an assumption and I had a blind spot that if I moved from Britain to here, that it would be the same. And it really isn't. We speak English differently. We use different words. We use our knives and forks differently. And there's all kinds of little ways in which the culture is different. And for a while, it made me feel that I was struggling to be included. And that's actually what began to get my attention was... I have the privilege of being white. I also have the privilege of having an accent that's pleasing to people's ears. And as I began to look at what were the benefits to me in moving from one country to the other, I realized that other people didn't have the same benefits. And so I became interested in the topic. I also, as an organizational development consultant and trainer, working with groups, I began to see the group dynamics, the way men and women were sometimes treated differently, the way women were interrupted, uh, or or the way people of color might have been ignored. And that began to capture my attention and my imagination. So it moved me um, almost unconsciously from just doing team building to starting to focus on diversity and inclusion and what were the dynamics. And that was in 1985.
1: Wow. Okay. So personal experience kind of drove you in the direction of that career. You know, I've been to several forums here in Virginia. The governor has a diversity and inclusion cabinet position. Dr. Underwood, a black female, fills the position. I've been in her forum live, again, before COVID. And I've been in in a few of her forums in the virtual atmosphere as well. And one thing that I have realized is... Definitions in defining diversity and inclusion, it's not uniform. People think they know what it means, and they probably don't, but the word diversity in and of itself doesn't have anything to do with the, the workplace per se, just a, a garden variety definition of diversity. So I think understanding definitions helps people establish a baseline to take the discussion forward. At least that's that's how it is for me. With that, can you define Diversity, inclusion, unconscious bias, you know, the terms associated with the topic. Let's start with diversity.
2: Right. So, so I see that sometimes I feel it's unfortunate that diversity and inclusion get put in the same sentence. Constantly. And that we assume that they're, by definition, they're partners. Uh, and, And actual fact, diversity speaks to the demographics of the organization. So when I look at your organization, how much diversity do you have? What's the gender diversity? What's the race or cultural diversity? What's the age diversity? So I'm looking really at the demographics, but it goes deeper than that. And I'll come back to that in a minute. The issue of inclusion is what kind of environment do you set up in your workplace? Do people feel included? Do they feel their voices are heard and valued? Uh, Do they feel that they want that they're anxious to come to work, that they're engaged? Do they feel that they want to give commitment rather than just compliance? Are they in a nine to five mindset or are they I'll stay until the job is done mindset. You know, the Gallup poll said that 65% of people last year are actively disengaged at work based on their study. That's a huge opportunity gap for us to figure out how do I make my organization more inclusive? So I think diversity are the, the demographics, inclusion is the work environment. It is actually possible, Bob, to have a diverse workforce and not be inclusive or to have an inclusive work environment and not have diversity.
1: That's a great point. That helps clarify it, I think, tremendously. But just to make sure I heard you correctly. So when diversity, you look at all aspects of the individual, their age, their sex, their race, but where they're from, what languages they speak, are they disabled? Are they normally abled? What other talents do they bring to the organization? Do they have artistic talent? Do they have musical talent? Are they they multilingual? All of that, you would agree is included in the definition of diversity.
2: So I would answer you this way is that from d- diversity as a definition is hierarchical. So everything that you listed, race, gender, sexual orientation, uh, physical ability, etc for me are at the top of that hierarchy. They are the issues that we have the most energy around the most confusion <laughs> around the most uh, walking on eggshells around the issue of whether I have artistic talent and can play a musical instrument which I can't, by the way, might be part of my individual difference, but it's not as high up the hierarchy in terms of things we need to talk about. However, it is about my individual diversity as distinct from what I think of as a systemic diversity issues like race and gender.
1: I can appreciate that. One of the issues I have is that in all these forums, diversity and inclusion, it's really presented as Black African American and brown and a lot of these forum leaders literally say that you need more black and brown people in your organization. So is that what diversity really means in the modern day discussion.
2: No, I I, I'm going to I'm going to do something. I usually just answer you two ways. No, that's not the only issue. We we want diversity. We want all kinds of diversity in the organisation. But just like I said, it's hierarchical. Clearly, you alluded at the beginning, or you referenced at the beginning, the murder of George Floyd. That's not the first time something like that has happened. It is the first time the country and the world has paid so much attention to it, which raises to consciousness the issue of the uh, African-American story, which, frankly, African-Americans have been telling us this story for a very long time, and we haven't been listening too much. So so is it the only issue? No, of course it's not. Is it an issue that's top of our mind at the moment? Yes, it is. So I think any organization that wants to address diversity and inclusion can ignore the, the conversations that we need to have. I'm running webinars for clients at the moment on becoming an ally. And these conversations are about how do you help people who are not Uh, who are white uh, or who are male, uh, the dominant culture groups, to have a conversation across differences and to feel that that they're not walking on eggshells. So it's definitely an issue and it's an issue that many people struggle with.
1: Okay, we've defined diversity and I like your hierarchical approach. We've defined inclusion. What about unconscious bias?
2: Okay, so unconscious bias, I, I say a couple of things about that. Unconscious bias we all have. No one gets to be a phenomenological exception when it comes to unconscious bias. That's the good news and the bad news. The other piece is it never goes away. So in my TED Talk, I talk about the fact that 15, 18 years ago, I discovered I had an unconscious bias I didn't know I had, that I was afraid to be on a commercial flight with a female pilot. And that night in Dallas, Texas, when it first hit me, I almost got off the plane and I thought, Helen, don't be ridiculous. You're a diversity consultant. You're not meant to think like this. But I realized that my unconscious bias or my mental model or mind virus, as I call them, was that competent airline pilots were tall, they were white, they were male, they had silver gray hair, and maybe they were ex-military, Air Force, or Navy. They could Navy. fly the plane. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. There you go. Yeah. I wasn't definitely sure prefer she... a former Navy pilot.
2: Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So, so I wasn't sure that she could. Now, that bias revisited me 15 years later in Australia when I was on a commuter flight from Canberra to Sydney and there it was again. And I'm like, whoa, it's still in the mental programming. So the issue with unconscious bias is we all have it. It doesn't go away. You have to catch it from the back of your neck and manage it. But I think the other issue is that It became trendy to talk about unconscious bias a few years ago, and I certainly do in all of my work. But we can't use it as a way to excuse ourselves and say, well, you know, my bad behavior, that was just my unconscious biases. We actually have to do the work. Is unconscious
1: bias, is it always wrong? Is it a pejorative?
2: No, it's not always wrong. And it's a good point you raise, Bob, because in actual fact, what it is, is our brain is making shortcuts. So our brains are fundamentally lazy. And so they like to have shortcuts too. I want to be able to identify, for example, the amygdala around fight and flight. Is that really a tiger and should I really run or or should I? is it just an illusion that I'm seeing in front of me? They're not all bad. Sometimes they're there to protect us. The problem is that they happen so automatically that we don't realize we're well-intentioned people. We think we're doing a good job, but we don't realize how often we shut people out. So shutting people out, if you're comfortable,
1: people naturally develop relationships or they don't coworkers, neighbors, etc. You know, I'm very sociable, very social with some of my neighbors, but not all of my neighbors. But it's not like they're shutting me out or I'm shutting them out. We naturally gravitate to areas that we're comfortable with. And again, I'll say, is that wrong? Is there something wrong with that?
2: Right. So no, there's nothing wrong with that. That's natural because we have an affinity bias that we move towards people that make us comfortable. And in your example, the neighbors that you're not friendly with, it's a neutral space, right? It's not like you're saying, I'm deliberately not going to be friendly with that. Right. Neutral space. Yeah. When it's not a neutral space, when you've got a team of people in your meeting, for example, and you unconsciously only pay attention to five of the eight people, you never ask the other three any questions, you don't have eye contact with them, you're less likely to say good morning, and they begin to make up a story about you not liking them and part of that story they start with themselves as an individual and then if if it's you and I Bob and I say well I don't think Bob likes me because he never speaks to me and he, even if I speak to him he cuts me off now I start by saying that's individual and then I ask myself is that because I'm a woman or is that because I've got a Scottish accent and he really doesn't like that
0: I love so, this kind
2: so, so part of the issue here, and it's an important one, is the difference between me seeing myself as an individual or seeing myself through my group identity membership. So when people are in that one up, one down position, because power and privilege are part of this, then what begins to happen is if it happens to me again and again, I start to factor in that gender's an issue that race is an issue, that my cultural difference is an issue. And so when Ah. we are in the dominant culture, as for example, in your case, white male, uh, you don't have to question these issues. But as a white woman, if I feel I'm not being treated well, then I start to ask myself now, is this me as an individual or me because I'm a woman? Is it me because I'm black? And so all of these issues factor in.
1: That's very interesting. So assumptions. People are going to make those assumptions. And unfortunately, they will assume the negative from time to time or more often. I have a wonderful young man who works for me and we have three floors in my building. And and this young man works on the second floor. And I was walking across the second floor one day and something was on my mind. I, I didn't even notice anybody. I was just going from point A to point B, thinking about what I was thinking about. Apparently, My gaze caught this young man's eyes, and he took it as I was mad at him. And -hmm. he went to his supervisor, and he said, why is Bob mad at me? And the supervisor came up immediately and and asked me that question, and I didn't even know the guy was working that day. But he saw a look from me, and he portrayed it as negative, but he he made an assumption, I will say. I'm glad he looked into it rather than let something Mm fester, but he made an assumption. It was an incorrect assumption. Luckily, we address it right away. That neutral space, I'm just, I'm, I'm really going to capture that term. I think that's a very important term. Sorry, I'm skipping around a little bit.
2: No, that's fine. And, and the, the important thing about what you said is that if you think about that young man and what he projected onto you, rightly or wrongly, he's drawing on data He's drawing on data from you being in a power position. You're the owner of the business. He knows it's important to his job that you are are okay with him. And so therefore, you walk around with an invisible shield of power and status that you don't always realize you're carrying. So everyone else in the organization is adjusting to see, am I still okay with Bob? And we all do that to some extent, right?
1: I'll tell you what, I teach leadership, obviously. And from a leadership perspective, that's a key point right there, is people are always wondering what the boss thinks about them or what's his opinion of of how they're doing. And I have lower back issues. I could be sitting in my chair at a meeting and when somebody's speaking, I grimace because my back hurts and they think I'm projecting some negative energy towards them when it's just right. my lower back. So right. uh,
2: And yes. then when you add the layer of complexity around race or gender or sexual orientation onto the top of that, then every time you grimace and it's in my direction, I've got all this data, not just from you, Bob, but from life in general. And yeah, it's not yeah, yeah, go ahead, sorry.
1: Yeah, well, I was just going to say that that is really unfortunate because if you remove the race equation, all, like you said, all those biases are still there. They're in all of us. They're not necessarily negative, and there's a level of consciousness that everybody has to have. I think you know, again, if 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 I grimace at somebody, if I grimace, it's not at somebody, but I need to be conscious of their perception of that. What do you say to those who say Diversity and inclusion is another form of affirmative action.
2: Well, I, I would say no, it isn't. That would be my simple answer. <laughs> um, affirmative action, look, uh, listen, I think companies hire for diversity and manage for similarity. So that's that's one. So we bring in diverse people and then we have them assimilate to the company culture. Um, But affirmative action is an official program to ensure that we move people of difference like women and people of color up through the organization. It clearly isn't. It didn't work because we're still not where we need to be in terms of seeing the best people and diversity in the C-suite, so to speak. So I have ambivalent feelings about the issue of quotas and affirmative action. And it's kind of like paradoxical. On the one hand, I don't like it because as a woman, I don't want you to hire me because you need a woman in that job. I want you to hire me because my credentials are phenomenal and I'm the right person for the job. So it's a, it's not a win-win for me to get the job and, and be told by people, you're only here because you're black or you're only here because you're a woman On the other hand, we've been working at this for 50 plus years and we haven't broken through the glass ceiling. I mean, look, at we're making a huge deal because we now have an African-American Asian vice president elect. In 2020, Bob, we should have passed this barrier a long time ago. So are we there yet? No. So sometimes I think we still need quotas. At least we need, I'll tell you what we do need. We need sincere allies and ambassadors like yourself, white men in senior positions who care enough to be curious, to lean in, to stay in the conversation when it's difficult and to say, yeah, I, I'm, I've got your back, Ellen.
1: Yeah, well, this is definitely one of those conversations. There's no doubt about it, but I'm, I'm leaning in. I make the affirmative action reference because I've heard that people say this is just another version of in, in many forums. But I also heard one of our state, or no, one of our one of our congressmen, say that that diversity and inclusion is the law and you know you, you uh, this was in a in a, at a big lunch forum and you heard forks hit the plate when he said that it, is this law anywhere that you're aware of
2: no i i mean I, I wasn't there when he said it but Diversity and inclusion isn't the law. Diversity and inclusion is an ideal that any sensible individual and company should be striving for because what's getting lost in the conversations most of the time is that when you have diverse groups, you get more creativity, more innovation, more commitment, and more, a better bottom line for the business. So diversity and inclusion are not the law. Discrimination against these groups is the law.
1: And we have we have training on that on a reoccurring basis. I think you said it earlier, and in one of your other discussions, you talk about blind spots. Mm-hmm. Can you can we explore that a little bit? Can you tell us really how we can identify it and and avoid it?
2: Yes. So so first of all, admitting that we all have blind spots is a good place to start and not beating yourself up about it, Accept that it's there. Be gracious when somebody points it out to you rather than defensive. You know, I had a a blind spot on time zone issues. One of the the issues is I I work in the area of global inclusion and uh, I run meetings on a regular basis for another organization, not one of my clients, where we have people from India on the call We have people from California, so from California all the way to India, and most of our meetings are set up in Eastern Standard Time, and the emails are sent out with, uh, this meeting starts at 10.30 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time, and then we come on the call and say, good morning, everyone, and it's not morning in (laughs) India. It's it's eight o'clock at night in India, right? Uh And so these are the little blind spots that eventually people pulled us up on and said, look, be nice if you just said hello uh, because we keep having to correct you in some levels it's not a big deal but in the underbelly of that it says the only people I'm thinking about and the only people I value are the people in my time zone and everybody else is it's a little inconvenient that you're way out there and and you're gonna have to get up and stay up in the middle of the night because I'm certainly not getting up at 4 a.m
1: right? I guess it's whoever owns the forum, whoever's paying for that, uh, for that airtime.
2: (laughs) uh, Yes, exactly.
1: So no, that's interesting. The blind spot theory, I think is uh, there's a lot to that as well. You know, you and I talked before about these aha moments and I think blind spots, I think unconscious bias, we all have those, like you said, and it doesn't mean we're bad people. It doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. It doesn't mean we're, we're discriminating, but we do want to check ourselves and, and just be conscious of others. Really, A lot of this is about being conscious of others, I think.
2: Yes. And and actually, I would also add, Bob, being conscious of yourself. I start my keynotes by saying, I know you believe you're well-intentioned and you behave inclusively, but what if you really don't? What if your brain is hardwired for selfishness and similarity and not for diversity and inclusion?" And so if every one of us is coming from a selfish perspective, then the the real work we have to do is catch ourselves.
1: Yeah, it has to start there. I mean, if it doesn't start there, it's not going to go anywhere. You're not going to make any progress. You know, in, in my organization, we have a phrase, I guess, if you will, called challenging assumptions. I want my team to challenge my assumptions. I want them to let me know when I might be getting ready to make a poor decision or a bad decision. And there's a way to do that. You know, you have to be approachable. Obviously, you have to have a team dynamic. You have to have a very high degree of trust with everybody. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're there for me and I'm there for them. Or or a better way to say it is we are all here for each other as much as we're here for the organization. Now, that's the ideal. Uh, Teams don't generally start out that way. And, you know, there's a theory that HR manuals, you know, all these rules and disciplinary procedures are written for 5% of the workforce. 95% 95% of the workforce are great people who want to do the right thing, but people have to be able to talk to each other. I want my team to come and tell me when they think I'm doing something wrong, just like a supervisor would tell a subordinate when they think they're doing something wrong. And, and I just call that taking care of each other. You know, I grew up in the military, 26 years in Navy special operations. You know, our core values are honor, courage, and commitment. We have loyalty, integrity, and professionalism. We took care of each other and we failed. Believe me, there was failure, but when you failed, somebody was there to either catch you or pick you up and dust you off. And that's just a big part of the military dynamic. Fast forward, I mean, today we're calling that diversity and inclusion in some capacity but in the military model, you know more than I do, but I think the military is probably, the US military is probably one of the most diverse organizations in the world. And I just didn't encounter the issues in uniform that we're having today. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying that we were mission focused and we were there for each other. And it's it was the best experience in my life, bar none. Can you tell us a success story or two? You have some very impressive clients and you will continue to have impressive clients. And If you need somebody to carry your luggage from client to client, I volunteer. Tell us a success story with one of your Fortune 500 clients.
2: I am privileged to have several success stories because as you read in my bio at the beginning, I've got several clients who've won awards because of my work. I think part of my success is that I have such a passion for the subject matter and such an incredible depth of knowledge in the subject matter. And I like to work with clients As business partners, I'm not very keen in just coming in and doing a one day workshop or at the moment, a Zoom webinar and, (laughs) and then leaving. I like clients who really want to partner with me to help them change the culture. I do keynote speeches, so that's more of a come in for an hour and a half and leave. But in terms of working in a partnership, uh, I worked with Commonwealth Bank of Australia, for example. We put 550 of their leaders through my unconscious bias assessment tool, and we did workshops, um, four-hour workshops, with all of these leaders And they won the Catalyst Award, which is a major award for their work on gender and unconscious bias. And that was an 18-month program. I've also worked with Texas Instruments in Dallas a, a few years ago, and they also won the Catalyst Award. And QBE Insurance, I put about 450 of their leaders through a similar program. And they won the Australian Human Resource Employer of the Year Award that year. So I have great success in working with clients who really want to lean in, understand and be curious about the the complexity of inclusion. See, I think inclusion is a soft word, Bob, that nobody argues against. Nobody ever says to me, Helen, I don't want to be included. Uh, so so I think the issue is it's much more complex to create an inclusive work environment. You know, when I was listening carefully when you were saying, I tell my employees to challenge my assumptions. And and behind that, as you also said, you have to create an environment where it's safe for me to challenge your assumptions. Because if I watch someone else challenge you and you shut them down halfway through the conversation, you just told me not to bother. And so inclusion's not easy. I get most of my work by referral because people give my name to other people or through my TED talk that people will come to me. And I've had a lot of success not just in the U.S., but globally. And I feel I'm totally privileged by that. The other thing, and, and I think this speaks to the skills that entrepreneurs have, because I'm not a huge business, I'm a, a small business like you are, it is the ability to pivot to, you know, when you see the market changing. And when COVID came along, and all of a sudden I wasn't doing 6 million air miles And I confess not to miss the travel. I did think, what does the client need right now? And I developed a webinar on becoming an ally. How do you have conversations? What do white people have to look at around walking on eggshells on this race topic? And uh, several clients picked that up. So I think it's important to understand the market. Yeah,
1: for sure. And that walking on eggshells, you know, I'm the chairman of the Virginia Beach Chamber of Commerce. So I interact with business owners on a very, very deep and very wide basis. And that walking on eggshells, if you're a white business owner, that's also real. That's also out there. And I would recommend anybody who's experiencing that, contact Dr. Helen and have her help you with that. Again, she has been tremendously helpful for me and my organization, and I just look forward to continuing the dialogue. I'm going to ask you about one more thing, and then we're going to sign off. But I, I want to ask you about this Groundhog Day, because again, businesses try to do something and it doesn't work, and they try to do something and it doesn't work. You know, what's, what's your Groundhog Day theory regarding diversity and inclusion in, in the workplace?
2: Yeah, thanks, Bob. That's a really important question because what you just said, you just nailed it, that companies try these programs like we went from working on anti-racism and then we went to working on gender issues and then we went to unconscious bias. And my fear, it, because obviously the George Floyd at murder was a catalyst for white people in organizations to say we need to do something and my fear is that when the cameras go off and the media stops covering this that those of us in the dominant culture in this instance white will lose interest in this subject and that people of color will say see I knew it I knew they weren't going to stay at the table and so for me this has to be a tipping point We have to be in this for the long haul because here's the thing that's not clearly understood is we all pay a price for racism and sexism to continue to exist or homophobia. We all pay a price, not just people of color. And not just women every one of us is walking on eggshells and having stories about each other at a group identity level that if we could stay the course if we could become allies and advocates and partners to each other we would at least have peaceful coexistence on this subject
1: have you i know i said that was the last question but you just you just spawned like six more so <laughs> <laughs> what kind of pushback do you get when you go into these big companies do you get any pushback or any resistance
2: not really Uh, Although in workshops over the years, we've had people not want to be there. As you probably will understand when I say this, the way I do this work is very non-threatening. So I'm not somebody that's going to beat you up. I want to meet you where you're at and help you to understand why you might be able to think differently. I've always believed if I can change 10% of the people and these 10% can change another 10% in their sphere of influence, then I'm doing my job. And so I'm not out to convince everyone in the organization to think like me. And so I think that the way I do the work, I don't get a lot of pushback from people because I'm listening very carefully to my clients and then designing what they need.
1: You're assessing the client's needs. You're not delivering Dr. Helen's programming. You're delivering what they need.
2: Correct.
1: Yes. I'm honest here. This will be the last question. (laughs) You're the author of The Illusion of Inclusion and you wrote this book. When did you write this book?
2: Um, I want to say 2015 it was published. So no, 2005, sorry.
1: I knew it was. uh, So you wrote this book 15 years ago. This was nowhere near the attention getting topic that it is today. So what was your basis of research for writing the book 15 years ago?
2: So it was based on years and years of experience running focus groups, doing interviews, running workshops, etc., across the world. And what it, the book essentially is, is talking about what I call the inclusion complexity model. I believe that there are three immutable forces that will never go away. Dominance will always be there. Unconscious bias will always be there. And what I call degrees of difference. And then four permeable forces, affinity bias, which we talked about, you know, neighbors you like or don't like. And, um, and then assimilation which is what people of color and women have to do to fit in. Political correctness, which we never talked about, but it's a factor in all of this. You know, that's the walking on eggshells in a sense. And then the issue of what I call stereotype threat. So there are seven factors that, that if you understand these seven factors, you can begin to make a difference in this process of diversity and inclusion.
1: Uh, fascinating. It's a topic that will be front and center, certainly for the rest of my professional life. And it has been, you know, for all of your professional life. So just fascinating. Dr. Helen Turnbull, how can people get a hold of you if they want more of Dr. Helen?
2: So my website is humanfacets.com, the name of my company. And my email address is Dr. Helen Turnbull, no dots or spaces, at humanfacets.com.
1: That's awesome. I can't thank you enough. Again, I appreciate every discussion that we've had and you're very generous. You're very kind. I love the Scottish accent. Uh, let's let's do this again soon. Thank yeah, you. Dr. Thank
2: you, Bob. We had lots to talk about so we could have gone on for another hour, right?
1: Easily.
0: Thank you for listening to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. To contact Bob directly or to learn more about how Bob can advance you and your organization through leadership training team building, executive coaching, and public speaking, visit RobertPazzini.com, Robert, P-I-Z-Z-I-N-I.com and connect with him on LinkedIn.